Today's episode is sponsored by the Academy for Virtual Teaching, a community of creatives building proficient, profitable, and professional online teaching businesses. As a solopreneur, you understand that feeling of exhaustion. There are limited hours in the day and only one of you to go around. The Academy for Virtual Teaching will help you develop the skills needed to add online education to your business model. It's a free, private membership community of supportive colleagues sharing the love of making things with students around the world. They've got an entire library full of equipment reviews and technical skill-building workshops. And they invite you to join the Academy for Virtual Teaching at a4vt.com. That's A, the number four, vt.com. They can't wait to see you there. Thank you so much, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 236 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about knitting cute things with my guest, Anna Harakbeck. Anna is a Chicago-based designer and artist who loves to knit little creatures. Just about everything is more fun in tiny form. So she's inspired by everything under her designer brand, Moki Moki Land. Anna has created hundreds and hundreds of knitting patterns that can be found in books and on her website, mokimokiland.com and on Ravelry. When she is not making cute stuff out of yarn, Anna is busy making stop motion animations with her woolly friends. Her heart knitting gnome is one of the most widely shared gifts in the world. Her first children's book, Cat Side Up, Cat Side Down, is due out in September and is now available for pre-order. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much, Abby. Great to be here. We were just bonding before we started recording about um, the early days of like indie craft on the internet and plush making back in the day. So it's so nice to to reconnect after all this time. Um, and yeah, and you know, see where everybody's uh, you know uh, career trajectory is taking them. So, and and yours is really taking you to so many remarkable places. So, I'm excited to hear um, how it's been going. But let's go back a little bit and tell me where you grew up and what your parents did for work when you were growing up. All right, I grew up in Oklahoma in a suburb of Tulsa, and my parents had very normal jobs. I feel like my my dad um, worked on engines, airline engines for American Airlines and um, fixed everything in his spare time. And my mom um, was a nurse and then she was a nurse educator. Um, and she also was in her spare time, a creative person, she would, um, one of her favorite things to do was to make like song parodies that she would do, like perform for the church talent show and things like that. So they both have these very, like very practical jobs, but like really fun, creative personalities on the side. 
And what was it like in a suburb of Tulsa growing up in, I don't know, the 90s? Was was like, what was that like for you? Uh, there were a lot of churches. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there was something like 40 churches in my town and no bars. Um, uh, so like pretty conservative, um, but like a fast growing town that I grew up in. So there were a lot of changes as I as I as I was there, but, you know, very, like, very suburban, just like very suburban Midwest. I had heard, I don't know if this is true, but I remember hearing when I was young that um, our town was considered like the most average town in the country and that I didn't experience this firsthand, but apparently some companies did like product testing and things um, in our area because we were so average, whatever that means. That's fascinating. So I I understand that you had an exchange student come to your house when you were somewhere in that middle school age range. So tell us about that and and the impact that that had for you. Yeah, I think um, much to my parents' credit, they wanted to expose us to things beyond our town. And we actually had a couple of exchange students come live with us each for a year. One was from Brazil. And one was from Japan, Yoshiko. And she and I, for whatever reason, really bonded. I think I was about 12 years old. So she was a little bit older. Um, but it was such a great experience um, living with somebody who was from a culture that seemed just entirely different from my own. But she was somebody very you know, open to learn everything. And I was of an age where I just wanted to um, learn everything about her and, you know, be a tour guide to my own town. Um, my, one of my favorite things about the experience of having her come live with us is her mother would send her these care packages from Japan and they would be full of candy and it would be the most adorable, beautiful, and also delicious candy that I'd ever seen with cute characters on it and everything. And this was 90, like like 93 or something. So I think things have changed a little bit more. There's a little more availability of that kind of stuff in the US now. But at that time, it was totally foreign to me. I'd never seen anything like it. It came from this magical land. And very quickly, I was saying, like, I have to go to Japan. Obviously, it's the place to be. It's this magical land full of candy and characters. (laughs) <laughs> so did you go um to to be an exchange student yourself I did in fact yeah um I it took me you know it was a few years after that I did visit Yoshiko once um for a little bit uh just to kind of see where she was from see the country so I knew a little bit about it um but a few years later um I actually, I had considered being an exchange student in France because I studied French and then I sort of chickened out. I don't know what it was, but I just felt like I wasn't ready. And then the following year, um, I just, I I was actually at a, uh, (laughs) I was, I was participating in like an, like an all state band concert, uh, um, uh, like, what do you call it? Like we had the rehearsals leading up to a performance and in our rehearsals, our um, guest conductor said, I was not really paying very much attention because I wasn't that into um, 
being part of a, a band, <laughs> but um, the guest conductor said something about like, you should do whatever you're scared to do in life. If you're afraid of something, that's the thing you should pursue. And to me being, you know, 16 or 17 years old, I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Japan and live there and be an exchange student. So yeah, I did end up doing that. Um, it was kind of like one of those moments where I just like decided I was going to do it. And then I did it. Uh, I didn't go live with Yoshiko. I lived with a different family um, in a suburb of Nagoya, which is a little bit sort of, uh, to me, it seems kind of like middle America, Japan's version of that. So that was kind of cool. Um, yeah. And, and that, that was your... Was that your junior year of high school or senior year? I, I actually ended up because of the way it timed out and because their school year starts in the springtime, I graduated a semester early with the intention of leaving that spring to, to be a student. So I was um, a little bit on the older side. I was 17 and turned 18 while I was there. Um, <clears throat> so I was all done with high school in the U.S. and was it was kind of a gap year, basically. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was an incredible experience and I lived with a family who had two, um, adult daughters living at home. They were both in their twenties and they were wonderful. I was kind of like their project basically. Um, and went to a high school in Japan and, uh, didn't, didn't, uh, I wasn't able to keep up really in the, with the classes in Japanese at this high school, but I spent a lot of time studying the language and got pretty, um, pretty far with it, uh, while I was there at least. And, um, you know, made a lot of friends, participated in the clubs after school, you know, wore the uniform, (laughs) all of that. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. That sounds like a fantastic experience. So when you came back, you went to Dartmouth. Um, and what did you study there? And, and I guess I'm wondering if that experience in Japan shaped your sort of choices when it came to college and, and what you wanted to do. I already was, um, you know, I was already committed to going to Dartmouth before I went to Japan, just because the timing of things. Um, and at that point, um, you know, being a dumb 17 year old, I was just like, I know I like Japan. So I want to study the language. I want to study Asian stuff. <laughs> so that's what I was like. Um, that was my intended major in college. Um, and then about halfway through, I was studying Japanese, I was studying Chinese. And uh, I once I got to China, and I was uh, doing a language program there, which I loved, I kind of realized like, I'm not going to get great at both of these languages and I don't want to be an academic and I don't really want to be like a, go into some kind of business. I don't know in Asia. So what am I doing? And I switched my major to film studies. Um, something is so much more practical. Uh, but I was like, I'm interested in media and this sounds really cool. And, um, so I kind of did ended up doing a film and television modified major with Asian studies. And I feel like I don't know that much about film because I kind of did it so late. Um, but I really loved those classes. And I think, you know, I think they sort of, they were not production classes at all, really. I guess I did a screenwriting class, but it was like, you know, uh, meaning making and, um, you know, closer to comparative literature than anything else, but I loved them. And um, uh, I think there's some, some small link maybe between looking at 
films and TV in a certain way. Um, and then uh, having a little bit of context with the background of studying Japanese to inform my future stuff. Oh yeah, I <laughs> see it for sure. Yeah, I think so. But um, how did you learn how to knit? Where did knitting come into this picture? I learned to knit in Japan um, while I was there as an exchange student. Um, one of my host sisters, Yumi, she um, she just learned from a friend. She happened to learn from a friend while I was staying with them. And I remember one evening she just she was just like, oh, look what look what I learned to do. I learned to knit and these are the stitches. And um, it seemed interesting to me. And I liked the idea of she she really didn't speak English, which was great. Um, but it was really nice to do something with her that didn't involve any language. Um, and so she taught me, um, you know, knit the knit stitch and she taught me the purl stitch and I kind of just went from there. I got some, I found a yarn shop in my little town and I got purple fun fur yarn, um, and knit myself a scarf. And then after I finished that, I got white fur yarn and knit myself another scarf and wore them like the whole time I lived there. Um, and I, I kept it up as a hobby, uh, through college. It was something I, um, you know, just did on the side between classes and stuff. And I had a boyfriend in college whose parents lived nearby and um, his mom was a big knitter. He's my husband now. She is my mother-in-law. Uh, <laughs> so she, she encouraged me a whole lot and taught me more than knit and pearl. And um, so it was kind of like, uh, I feel like it was just kind of by chance that I picked it up in Japan and then like a really lucky thing that the person I was seeing had this awesome mom who really uh, uh, found a perfect way to bond with me and it became a big part of our relationship. She asked, uh, she must be really thrilled with where you've gone with it. I mean, since that time, just looking at all that you've done with those skills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sure. She still, I still bounce ideas off of her all the time and she has a huge stash of yarn. So when I go to stay with my in-laws, um, if there's anything I want to make, I can just go up to her yarn room and look at what she's got available, which is everything. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, um, so when you graduated, um, you, I know at some point, I don't know if it was right after graduation or, or shortly thereafter, but you were working at a gallery in Soho. And so tell us how that happened and kind of what that experience was like um, to, to work at a, you know, that's kind of glamorous to work at the gallery. <laughs> I guess it sounds a little more glamorous than it was, but it was really cool. Um, yeah. So I moved to New York after college um, and uh, I basically didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I was like, I like Japan stuff. That's cool. and you know, movies and TV sound neat, but I, from, from what I knew of going into production, it's like, I'd be a PA and there's a lot of like running errands and then like sitting around and waiting for stuff to happen. And that sounded boring. So I remember I was just like looking at online job listings for anything. And, um, one day, like months into just not being sure what I was doing. Um, I saw a listing for, it said like small creative agency 
um, headquartered in Japan, working with illustrators. And it just said, like, you don't have to, it said some design involved, but not, it's not a design job. And understanding Japanese is a plus. And I was like, okay, I like art. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and so I applied for this job and I had to be kind of persistent because um, I think they, something like they had actually already filled the job and then the listing was old or something. But um, I did get an interview and it was this tiny little office. There were three other people. And they basically um, helped illustrators, many of whom were Japanese and a lot of whom were actually European. Um, they worked with them to uh, connect them with jobs at magazines and ad agencies, things like that, all kinds of different creative uh, companies that needed illustration work. Um, and it just seemed like cool people and interesting stuff going on. And the the boss was Japanese. And so I, you know, got to do a little bit of my interview in Japanese. And um, yeah, so I became, they finally hired me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they, I was a junior creative agent was my role, which basically was looking at contracts and sending emails back and forth between artists and people hiring them, editors and things like that. Um, so early on, I was like, okay, this is like, you know, it's the artwork is cool, but like it's the desk job and it's kind of a job job. There were a few interesting things with it. But what, one thing that was cool was about, about a year after I'd been there as an agency, we opened a little gallery. So it was an illustration agency that had a gallery connected to it. I see. And the but the gallery was like really cool. I think originally the intention was like, we'll feature our artists work and it's a nice thing to have this showcase, but like really quickly, um, it turned into, we had some like fascinating shows and, um, one of which, at least one of which you participated in Abby. <laughs> I know it's so crazy. These like plus shows that happened way back in like, I don't even know when that was, but mid 2000s at some point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like 2006, I want to say mm -hmm. seven, eight. Um, it was so fun. Yeah. That was a fun time. So fun. Yeah. So the gallery, you know, we were showing, um, we would show artworks by our artists, but then, um, I think maybe just because of the people I worked with who were really um, into the arts and up on what was fun and happening right now, we had a plush toy show that was called Lovable and Huggable. Yeah. And we invited some of our favorite plush artists. And actually, I didn't even know what a plush artist was. So this was a whole new thing to me to discover there were people out there making, basically making their own stuffed animals. Right. and. You know, that's really cool. These handmade, totally indie stuffed animals, um, many like out of felt or cloth, but some of them were crocheted. Um, and I loved that that was happening. And for most of the artists that we worked with for this show, the things that they made were not necessarily for children, which I thought was really, really cool too. That's right. Especially having come from Japan, seeing how there they have all these characters integrated mm -hmm. into their lives and you don't have to just be a kid it's for everybody 
I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Lyric Kennard from the Academy for Virtual Teaching. My name is Lyric Montgomery Kennard, and I'm here with the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And can you tell us a little bit about what the Academy for Virtual Teaching is all about? We are a community of creatives, people who make things. We have um, mostly a lot of quilters, but we also have a lot of crafters, knitters, um, sewers, cricket cutters, all those kind of things. And we all teach online in some way, or we are interested in the technology used to teach things to people through a screen. Great. And so, I mean, I, I know for myself, like it can be overwhelming to learn all the parts that are required to do this and do it well at a quality level that I would be comfortable with. So is that part of what you break down for people to make it easier to, to get started? Right. The fear of the tech, right? We've, we're all there at some point and it's always changing. We are there to provide ongoing professional development opportunities. So that is exactly it. Education on all the tech involved in building a virtual teaching business, whether that's live via Zoom or on-demand classes or just YouTube tutorials. Okay, that's great. So, and also you're covering things like pricing, because that's always really tricky. Marketing the class, like how do you actually bring in the right audience that's going to buy the class so you can get paid, um, figuring out like hosting, because then you've got these big videos, so they need to go somewhere where it's actually going to load quickly and have a good user experience. There's so many aspects of this. All the things, right? Um, we have two different parts of the membership. We have a general community, which is where we ask each other questions, where we just have ongoing conversations. We have ongoing business topic conversations every month. So all the parts of the business, from marketing to advertising, we did a seminar just recently on how to get a really good headshot. But we also have a masterclass that takes somebody step-by-step step from the very beginning of what is an on-demand class or a live Zoom class, what platforms are there, what equipment do you need, which by the way, it's always much less than you think it is, and how to use it and how to build your whole business. So there's a little bit of everything, even really advanced um, online teachers have been able to gather a lot of really good information. That's great. So Lyric, tell us where we can go to learn more. Our website is a, the number four, vt.com, a4vt.com, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now back to my conversation with Anna. So I was like, oh, okay, so people in the U.S. are doing this and are seeing characters in that way, too. So I was super inspired. And it was kind of like at that same time, I was I was seeing this amazing work people like you were doing and um, also feeling like I don't really think I want to be an agent for artists, probably. So I was like, you know, I can knit. What if I try to make some of my own little creatures and stuffed animals and things like that. And it was one of those funny things. It was kind of like that moment when I decided, oh, I'm going to go be an exchange student in Japan. Mm -hmm. I made, it was actually when we were opening the gallery and the plush show was one of the first things we were doing. I, I made these knitted plush versions of our gallery logo, okay. which looked a little bit like a creature. 
if you recall. I don't know if you remember it, but it kind of had a little, it was, it was supposed to be, I think the building that we were in, which was some kind of, it's the cable building in New York, sort of famous, like the building. And then with paint drips coming down, like the top of the building, but it's just the paint. So it kind of looks like a creature with paint, painty legs, like the blobs look like legs. So I made these um, knitted logos. I just like knitted a flat front and a flat back and stitched them together um, and did, you know, use like increases and decreases to do the shaping. Um, here's my cat. Uh, and when I embroidered the eyes onto these little creatures, like the, I remember the first one that I did, it was this bright pink color. I embroidered these two black eyes on it and like suddenly it was looking back at me and I was just like, it was one of those moments I was like, okay, so this is what I want to do. Like, it's I mean, magical. I, didn't... I get it completely. Yes. It's like, yeah. It's... It's a fabulous feeling. Yes. It's a great feeling. And that first one, I mean, I didn't think like, this is my next job, but I was just like, I'm going to do so many more of these. I'm going to have so many ideas. This is a thing. Um, but yeah. So like it was coming together of like the gallery and the plush artists and then making something for the people I worked with. And then like that kind of spark, I was like, okay, this is the next thing. Right. Okay. So now you kind of have this, as you said, spark. Um, And so in order to make this into something that's going to be a viable job, um, that would allow you to maybe leave your job job and do this. Um, I'm imagining, you know, you need to figure out some income streams from doing this. Um, And you can, of course, knit and sell, you know, finish stuffed animals, but um, patterns are also another way to go. So um, did you sort of realize you needed to maybe start making some patterns early on, or was it a while before that realization kicked in or kind of what was the next step there to kind of make this into something that would allow you to not be an agent, but professionally do whatever it is that this is called? Well, I was not very methodical about any of it. Um, I think being, you know, in my early twenties, I was at a point in my life and and being married I was married at that time I was kind of like um I just want to see what this could be basically and I had no idea really I mean I had followed patterns but I just I didn't know if I could write that kind of thing um so I was making these creatures what I did want to do early on um was put them on Flickr Ah, because yeah yeah photo sharing everything was on Flickr and I started really basic blog um, cause I wanted to share what I was doing. And at that point, what happened career wise for me was that I told my boss that like, I didn't think I wanted to be an agent. Um, but I also, I was just like, I don't, I don't really know what I want to do. She was asking, she's like, okay, so what are you doing next? Um, I was like, I don't know. I've been making these stuffed animals and I made a blog. So I'd like to just kind of do that for a little bit. And, um, she was kind and very smart. And she said, well, what do you think about working time for us? And you can do your thing on the side. And that would never occur to me. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, let's try that. And that ended up being wonderful because I was, um, time, not really so much working on the agent side of things anymore, but helping, helping with the gallery, which was really fun and like writing up um show descriptions and sending them out and stuff like that um so I did that and I went into the office like two or three days a week 
And then my other time, I was just knitting things and posting them and blogging. And pretty quickly, um, I think I made a my this pink elephant called Pepto. Um, I heard started hearing from knitters on Flickr because I, you know, I put them in on Flickr. They had those groups that you could your photos into. So I was putting my photos into just like the plush groups or whatever. But I was getting comments from knitters um, saying like, oh, do you have a pattern for that? I want to make that. And I was just like, oh, no, I don't I don't know how to write patterns. And um, somebody named Angela, who is actually quite a <laughs> quite a prominent designer herself, Angela Tong. Yeah. She um she was commenting. She said, like, oh, well, I could I could help you make a pattern, like, you know. Um, if you make something, I could test it for you. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll try that. So um, she and a few other knitters early on, like basically like kind of held my hand and mm-hmm. showed me that um, I can write the instructions for how to knit the things that I'm knitting, making it that my instructions made sense. And it was also like great timing because Ravelry like started right. up right around then too. Sure. So I was on Ravelry early. Yeah. And what I, what I found out quickly, and I guess I kind of maybe knew this since it seemed like a new idea to me was that there were not a lot of patterns for knitted toys. There were more crocheted amigurumi. Mm-hmm. Um, so knitters were kind of excited about that. And because Ravelry was new and I was making toys, people found me pretty quickly Um, and, uh, I was surprised at like how, I don't know, like how just welcoming the knitting community was online and how online they were and how I could make a pattern that was a PDF and people would, um, would want to give me money for that. Um, so I really didn't ever, I, I did a few little shows, um, craft shows where I would sell things that I made, but not, I would, that was never like a focus of mine, which I think was great because that could have burnt me out extremely. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And were the, um, stuff animal patterns that you were, um, designing and writing up and selling at that time, were they tiny the way that Moki Moki land um, animals tend to be, or were they sort of regular sized? They were larger at first, regular sized, like palm sized, I would say. Um, one of my early designs was a snake that eats a mouse. Um, like the snake has an open mouth and the mouse can go inside and make this cute little lump in the snake. Um, and, uh, so that's kind of a like a larger toy. Um, there was a rain cloud that's like the size of your head, more or less. So I was thinking like a little bit larger, not large, but you know, like normal stuffed animal scale size things. Um, and they got tinier um, right about when um, I submitted something. I had a piece in one of the lovable and huggable shows um because it was an annual show Mm -hmm. and I made a I thought it would be cool to make a soft sculpture Mm -hmm. basically so I made a um a piece that was these lemmings that are running up a cliff and jumping off and swimming around to get back on the cliff um so I was like uh I gotta make a bunch of lemmings and realize that I could make these itty bitty little shapes 
basically tiny closed tubes and add just a little bit of embroidery for their eyes and their ears and um, their legs, I think might've been eye cords, but just like little tiny pieces of knitting. And then suddenly like, it's a little animal Mm -hmm. that took me, you know, 15 minutes to make. Um, So 15 minutes to make, I can make, you know, 30 of them. Um, and it was so fun to pose them all together on my little cliff. And they each had just by way of the way that the stitches worked out, they kind of had little different personalities and, um, it was so fun to make this scene that had some like movement and action to it. And, um, so that was when I was like, oh, like small is quicker it's less material it's simpler but it has even like in a way like even more potential for um telling stories and having personalities and interaction and relationships um so sort of what me in that direction yeah right okay that makes a lot of sense and it sounds like um that idea of interaction and relationships and movement was also planted kind of early on. Like maybe these guys cannot just be permanently posed on the cliff, but, you know, can actually jump off and then swim around and climb back up. And, you know, I mean, there, there's potential there because they're small, they're easier to knit, they're quicker, um, you know, and there can be a lot of them that there would be some sort of potential there for animation and action to take place. Um, I don't know how long that took, you know, between that sort of lemmings cliff piece and, you know, to to actually start filming them in some way. I mean, I think um, the technology too probably had to catch up a little bit as far as being able to to make um, videos easily that were good quality and to share them also, you know, back when we had dial up internet, that was not um, such an easy thing to do, believe it or not. So um, I don't know whether um, there was a moment where you were like, okay, well, let's actually make them move. Um, Like, how did that happen? That happened as um, sort of a, a little bit of a separate thing. I had always been interested in stop motion animation but hadn't tried it. Cause yeah, it seemed, you know, if you hear anything about stop motion animation, people are like, Oh, it takes so much time. It's right. You know, very and you think like, it's very tedious. You think like Wallace and Gromit and like Nation, yeah. right. That's what comes to my mind at least. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but I was, I was a little bit interested in it and I, I have, you know, been lucky and uh, to, 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 always be able to follow something that I have some interest in, you know? Um, so I, uh, was, I was taking a continuing education class at, um, I think it was the new school in New York for actually I was taking a continuation, continuing education class in, um, illustrator, Adobe illustrator for my work, because it seemed like that could, cause it wasn't a design job, but like, you know, it's good to know how to make some, like, I don't know, uh flyers and things like that for the gallery so I was learning how to do illustrator and then when I finished that class I was like that was a good experience um what else do they have and I like looked at the course catalog and they had stop motion animation and I was like hey I've always wanted to try that maybe I should so I took a class in it um that was interesting uh b- but a little discouraging because it was very traditional um we spent half of the 
of the um, session just making um, our models like out of wire and you know we use Sculpey and we like made clothes for them like it was basically making like a detailed puppet which was cool um but uh you know we animated them in the classroom they had these little um, sets set up but we had to like bolt the characters into the sets their feet had these you know screws could go in so anytime you moved something you'd have to like go underneath the table and unscrew it um so to make somebody walk was like a big deal (laughs) and uh, I made this animation with I remember my character was this old man who I really liked him he had these um his he was wearing bunny slippers and my idea for my little animation was that the bunny slippers sort of come to life and I, I don't think they would come off his feet but like just make his feet do weird things um so that was kind of fun and interesting, but also like I had trouble with like the camera that I had didn't work well with the software that we had to use. And I didn't even really understand how the software worked. And then this whole idea of like having this set that you have to bolt things into. And I was just like, I can't do this in my studio. It wasn't a studio apartment, my like, you know, a small New York apartment. Like I don't have for this and I also don't totally get it. So um, after the class was over, I was like, that was cool. But, you know, I guess I can't really do anything with it. Um, And it was my husband, John, who said, like, you have like hundreds of these tiny characters that you've met. How hard can it be to animate them, really? And like, he's the one who made this connection of like, stop motion animation is you take a picture and then you move it a little bit and you take another picture. And how hard could it really be to find a way to put those together, right? So um, <clears throat> I don't remember if it was him or me, but one of us figured out that I think we just Googled it and you can use Photoshop to put pictures together. And I had Photoshop because of my job. So that's when I learned how to make frames in Photoshop. Basically, you just make a bunch of layers out of your photos and then you can turn them into frames and then you animate them in Photoshop and you can loop them and you can export them as animated GIF. So um, that was a few years after the Lemmings. Um, it felt like a big gap though, because I had to go through this whole thing of like, I'm interested in this. And I'm like, no, I can't do this. And right. I'm like, oh, actually, like I should have been doing this all along. It makes complete <laughs> sense. Right, um, right. So yeah. And then once I got started, I was like, it was another one of those, like, this is, this is my thing now. Like I have to do this now. And it's, um, it's the biggest thrills too. I mean, I think still to me, even though I've knit thousands of little things, um, gnomes alone, I've knit thousands of them. Each one you add the eyes to it and it's magic and it's so exciting. It's like the first time and like, that's amazing. And then to be able to, you know, with, not, I mean, it'd be so simple. You can make a gnome just like walk around on your little set, which can be, you know, a piece of felt propped up by some books or whatever. Um, take some pictures of that and put it together and have it loop around. And it, that is just, it's magic because now it's come to life and it has its own personality expressing itself. And we mentioned in the intro, you have this one particular gift that. I didn't even know it's, I mean, it makes sense because I've seen it myself. I've seen it at least hundreds of times, if not more, um, just in various places. We actually linked to it in our newsletter this Valentine's Day. It's it's all over the place. And it's this gnome um, with a heart 
And um, I don't know how long into the process of making gifts that one came about, or if you could just tell us the backstory of it and kind of its remarkable trajectory as a piece of media. Yeah, that one, um, it was a little ways into my making gifts, um, but I remember it so clearly because I made it the day after the 2016 presidential election when many of us were feeling very out of sorts and very low. And for me, I just felt like I needed to make something and I wanted to make something cute and just focus on that for the day. So, um, yeah, that's when I, I think within one day I came up with a concept of like, you know, it's pretty simple, but I hadn't really made anybody knit before, um, in an animation, but I'm like, I'm sure I can do it. Cause like I can knit. So if I can just make the stitches go back and forth and, you know, actually make different stages of this heart coming into being, um, I think it would look like this gnome is knitting. And I literally got a toothpick and uh, broke it in half and made that into his knitting needles and stuck them through his hands. And he's on um, this gray background because I was feeling gray. <laughs> I was like, you know, feeling like being in a dark place and like, you know, this kind of literal interpretation of I want to make something happy while I'm feeling down. And um, so it was a nice way to focus because like the little tiny stitches, I've never like had to make somebody else knit before and make it look like it's happening. But um, it came together like pretty fast, really. I shot it and um, had to do just a little bit of editing because when the heart goes up, I was using, I just basically had a knitting needle stuck to the side and I just held it up and took pictures that way. So in Photoshop, I erased that, um, did it that night. I posted it the next day and um, you know, people were looking for something happy and hopeful, and that must have just kind of fit the bill for a lot of people. And I think it was the following year that it really took off as far as people sharing it. Um, uh, and it was a little bit all over the place. And yeah, it was kind of a crazy experience to see like these big numbers pop up on my Instagram and Twitter and everything and all these comments and stuff. But I, the nicest thing about it was like, it had nothing to do with like my face, you know, as far right. as things going viral, like um, it felt pretty anonymous. So it just felt really good. And I'm very happy for my gnomes to be famous and all over the internet. Um, a lot of it is, you know, it's one of those things where, especially with something like a GIF, like it gets disconnected from the original source. Right. Um, so I see it all the time with other people's like logos on top of it, which I don't love. Um, and then of course, like the vast majority of people who see it don't know who made it, but I don't know. I just think it's really cool. And I love that it's, you know, it's a happy image. It's not like mm -hmm. some kind of weird face that I made or something. Absolutely. It's <laughs> you know? just like this little element of internet culture, which is because it's so familiar. People have seen it so many times. So I think that's really interesting. And I'd love to talk a little bit too about your work with Nickelodeon, um, because that was a really significant opportunity. And it's super cool to see um, these little, they're almost like little interludes um, that you knitted for them. And so tell us about how that opportunity came about and kind of what the experience was like. Cause I, I think you had moved to Chicago at that point and then had to come back to New York and work with them. But 
Um, I, I imagine working with a huge company like Nickelodeon on something that's going to be on TV like that. It's really instructive. Like that, it just you learn a lot from from just being in that environment and hearing their their art direction and and things like that. Uh, yeah, it was incredible. Um, that was a project that was directly a result of that first job that I got at the illustration agency because um, to go back a little bit, um, after I'd been working part-time with them for about a year or so, and I'd been um, making these designs and making patterns and seeing you know, that that could be a business, um, I told my boss, like, I think I need to shift to doing my knitting projects and knitting work full-time now. Um, and she said, well, how about we represent you? Which is not something that I expected, but uh, it seemed like an amazing opportunity, especially since they didn't represent anybody else. I think maybe they had one other three-dimensional artist, but um, anyway, that was such a thrill and a huge endorsement of my, you know, my abilities, I guess, or what she thought of um, my potential. So yeah, so I said yes. And then this is a project that came, you know, it was quite a few years later as these things go, but she is basically, you know, she had this contact at Nickelodeon and he had come, his name is Matthew, and he had come to those plus shows before and had seen my work and liked my work. And then like years later, it was kind of still in his head. And then one year he just proposed to the Nickelodeon people like, what if we have these as um, basically sort of like station IDs, you know, right. the interstitial Nickelodeon uh, thingies that come between the ads um, for the holiday season. And just like miraculously, whoever makes these decisions said, okay. And yeah, it was a weird time because I was, it was right when I was moving from New York to Chicago, like I was on my way to Chicago. Um, when this really started happening. So I didn't have all my stuff. I just picked out whatever colors I thought I needed. And they had me, um, they had me make some concepts for the little, um, the little IDs and those used my character. So yeah, I came up with concepts for my characters. Most of them were not quite right. And they helped me like revise those. Um, so from the beginning, it was a pretty collaborative process. Um, and then they also had me knit a bunch of Nickelodeon characters, which was so fun. I got That's to knit cool. a little SpongeBob. <laughs> yeah. And a little Patrick. They were the best. Uh, and other characters too. So there were kind of two components of it. Stuff that was my world, like my snowmen and my gnomes. And like I had squirrels and things like that. Um, and then the Nickelodeon stuff. And the stuff that were mine... Um, uh, I flew back as soon as I moved to Chicago, I flew back to New York and worked with their team to animate them at their studios, which, um, was in Times Square. So that was very strange to go from living in Brooklyn and then like coming back and staying at this little hotel in Times Square and working in this weird, very vertical building there. Um, and their team was just incredible. It was like, I think it was three or four people. They worked amazingly together and they were excited about the project because, you know, they don't get to do stop motion animation that much. It was kind of a different thing for them, but they all had, you know, animation backgrounds and art and design. So 
It was just like my first experience of working with a creative team, very hands-on. Like I was physically getting up and making the stuff move for every shot. Um, and, uh, I, it was, it was like a dream. It really was. I, it was an intense three days. We packed it all into three days and we shot, I think five of these animations, which, which is a lot because the quality was like a little more professional than, mm -hmm. um, than I was doing at home, but they had made animatics, which I had never even heard of before, but they'd made an animatics for what actually happens in the little, um, animation. So it's like a rough, like, Okay. animated thing I still don't even know how to make them I should learn how I guess but it's basically a rough animation to help you um time out what you're doing okay um and you know they had a big fancy like monitor as we were shooting so I could see it um in real time um one of the sequences was a little too complicated for me because it was a and this was their concept it was a yeti doing like um like olympic style gymnastics flips and stuff on these um yarn covered twigs that I had made and I was like I I am not coordinated enough to to do all that so um one of they had one of their animators just like got in there and he used the animatic as a reference and frame by frame he figured out exactly how to make this yeti flip around so it looked like you know all the physics were correct with him like flipping over these bars like parallel bars or whatever they call them um and uh I don't know. It was just incredible. And I remember after those three days, I was totally exhausted. I just remember crying because I was like, I don't know when I'm going to be able to have an experience like this again. It was incredible. And um, it was amazing because not long after that, the schedule was so tight, they started appearing on TV. And I heard from people that I knew like, hey, I think I saw like something that you made on Nickelodeon. And, um, and, the, and the Nickelodeon stuff that I'd made, they animated later on their own too. So there were some surprises of things I hadn't seen before. And I got to see what they did with those guys. Um, it was just the most incredible experience. And um, I'm still not over it. I get excited about it when I think about <laughs> it now. <laughs> um, and you've written a bunch of books. And I want to make sure we get to some of your book projects because there is a current one. But You've written um, a bunch of knitting books. And when I was looking at them all on Amazon and their publication date, it almost seemed like there was one a year for like five years or something like that from 2010. Um, and and that's pretty, they came out with Pottercraft. That, that was got to have been an intense situation there because to turn out pattern after pattern after pattern for a book, it's a lot. Um, and then to do it, over and over again. Um, so I, I don't know what that period of time was like for you, but I'm imagining a lot of very intense pattern writing and a lot of very intense sample knitting. Yeah, it was intense. Um, also really fun. That came about because uh, actually that was thanks to Flickr too. Um, my first editor got in touch with me because she saw my work on Flickr and she was like, have you thought of making a book? And I was like, uh, now I am. And, uh, how do we do that? Uh, and it wasn't that simple. Like I had to go through a whole process, you know, making a proposal and everything, but, um, I really enjoyed making them. I love a big ambitious project that I'm not totally sure if I can pull off. And each one of those felt like that. Um, I also really love designing in like, you know, I do a little bit of teaching, but my favorite thing is just to, have the concept, 
and make the thing and have it look back at me. And that's so exciting. And with a book, it's a cool challenge of, you know, having some sort of theme to work with and making a collection of projects around that theme. Um, The first one was kind of a general um, knitted toy book. It had some wearable toys. It had some tiny toys in it. Um, And, uh, you know, because all of my stuff is, I mean, aside from the wearable guys, um, it's not stuff you have to wear. It's not stuff that needs to be graded for sizing and everything. So it's, you know, it's not like I'm making, uh, I don't know, books of sweaters or anything like that. But um, so I can really focus on the design of it, the character of it. I love incorporating different techniques and ideas and shapes and things unexpected. So getting to do that. Um, and all the five books was really cool. I did a book of, um, after my, the first one, I did a book of tiny toys, which was super fun. Cause that was just like what I was obsessed with and already making. So that kind of came naturally as a follow-up. Um, and then I did a book of scary toys, which made me realize I have no like horror bone, bone in my body, <laughs> but it was really fun to make like silly little monsters. I did make a book of huge toys. Um, which was a big challenge for me because I was used to working small and I, I, there is something about like a giant stuffed animal that is just so charismatic and really, really, really fun. Um, so that was a great process. And then my, my last pattern book was, um, a storybook with patterns, which was a concept I had to kind of push for. And, um, I'm glad that I got the opportunity to do, but it was so hard that was the most challenging one, um, mostly because of the photography. But for all of those books, I got to work with a friend of mine on the photography. Her name's Brandy Simons. And she's somebody I just got to know because she actually was neighbors with my parents. And um, she's somebody who, you know, I met when I was going back home visiting my parents and she really got what I was doing and she likes my toys. And it was so fun to work with her on all these books um, to just like figure out how we can shoot things in like funny and beautiful ways. And that was a huge like learning experience for me for my own photography, which, you know, I didn't, I don't have any formal background in photography, but I feel like I got so much better at doing, you know, like product shots and then like fun beauty shots with my stuff. Um, So that was super fun with her. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And I basically just stopped doing them because the um, the imprint basically mm-hmm. closed and shifted gears. And I had had a series of different editors, but all of them, you know, went on to do other things. And I still, I really liked doing pattern books and I feel like I'm very open, like I'm open to the universe as far as doing another one, but I'm also not at a point where I want to make a proposal and try to sell something. So like, I think it could be fun to do again, but I'm also okay with like, that was a thing that I did in the past. And right now when I design something, I do love the instantaneous um, nature of photographing it, putting on Instagram, getting instant feedback, making a pattern, you know, getting it tested, edited, putting it out there instantly. I see, well, almost instantly, I get to see like 10 of them from different people mm-hmm. popping up on Instagram. And then, you know, if I'm lucky, maybe it turns into hundreds and I get to see everybody making them and getting that like almost, almost real time connection with knitters is like 
you kind of can't beat it. So yeah, um, I'm very happy doing that too. Um, so and it, you know, it's kind of nice how it doesn't require planning. I rarely know what I'm going to make next. I have sort of a list of things I want to make. And then um, sometimes I'll just get a sudden idea and I have it done within, you know, a few weeks and it's out there and that's so fun. Yeah. It's a lovely loop for sure. Um, and uh, you have this new book that is, it sounds like a children's storybook. So, um, it sounds like with that last book pattern book, um, had some story elements and was really challenging. So was this children's storybook equally challenging or was it just entirely different? It was challenging, but entirely different. Um, the storybook that I made before I tried to make, they were actual stories with narratives and the world was an immersive world. So if you see the photographs from, from that book, it's called Adventures in Mochi Mochi Land. It looks like you're seen into Mochi Mochi Land, which is what I wanted. And um, it was so fun. It was really hard to do um, as it turned out, <laughs> even with working with this like very talented photographer. I learned a lot about, um, you know, photography miniatures and things like that. Um, my new book, Cat Side Up, Cat Side Down, that's coming out this year, it's less of a storybook and more of a, um, I actually don't know what it's called exactly. It's a book of rhymes. It's um, along the lines of, oh, what? I don't know. Like sort of a, you know, as a board book, like a tod- mm-hmm. like toddler yeah. range. I believe it's two to five is the age range uh, officially. I think it should have appeal to older kids and adults and anyone who loves cats and knitting. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's the hook is it's cats, knitted cats, and it's prepositions. So it's introducing prepositions. There's a lot of prepositions in the rhyming. And it's cats in different positions and in different containers and things because prepositions are like inside, outside, Mm -hmm. um, within, without, around, so using all those words and then the photography I did just on white. Um, actually, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that I would photograph it, but my editor encouraged me to do the photos myself. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. So that was the big challenge for me. Um, and so it's, the style is so much more simple and the language is more simple, which I love. And I think it goes along really nicely with my designs, which are, pretty simple like mm-hmm. I love the minimalism it's like that hello kitty look you right. just got two eyes and a nose and I love working with cats as a theme because to me a cat can be any size or shape and as long as it's got triangle ears it's a cat so that's really fun to play around with in knitting and um so it was a lot of cats because it's a 32 page long book and each page has at least one cat on it, and many of them have multiple. So I was knitting a lot of cats, but it was a pleasure to knit these cats without having to think about the pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it's a pattern book, I would want each one to be different and you know, of course, some like user-friendly, something that people could re- reproduce really easily. And with this, it was a little more, I was more free to experiment. Um and uh, use all different kinds of yarn and the greatest I mean not the greatest thing but one of the cool things about this book is that it's coming out as a it's a children's book there's no patterns in the book but I am free to make patterns so oh, nice. I can make yeah that's yeah, great I made sure <laughs> I made sure that I can make patterns for the cats 
I want to, I have a really busy year coming up. I'm actually working on a new book, but I'm really hoping that I can make at least one or two patterns of cats from the book and have them come out around the same time. Yeah. And of course I also have to animate these cats because that was a challenge too, is like finding a single pose, a single image to convey each of the, um, you know, ideas, the propositions that I'm working with in the book. Um, because I totally see things in movement and animation now. So, um, so all these cats that I have taken pictures of already, like now I want to get in there and animate them doing the things that the pictures are of. And I think that's going to be really fun when I find the time for it, hopefully around the release of the book in September. Right, right. Absolutely. So there's so many ideas there, possibilities. Um, and you are also, you're a very busy person. So you're also working on a television show. I didn't even know you were working on a new book, but you are also working on a television show. And I don't know how much of that you can reveal at this point. Um, but can you just give us a little sneak peek of what it is all about? Yes, gladly. This is the most thrilling thing of all. And I kind of, uh, don't know how to talk about it thoroughly because it's like so crazy to me that it's actually happening. But um, I am involved uh, with a TV project that's based on my knitted world. Um, The TV show is called Wooly Wooly. And it's a co-production between a studio in Montreal and a studio in France. So um, it's a French Canadian production, but I'm involved as a producer and as a creative consultant. So this is the best thing of all. Um, a producer from Canada saw my um, my adventures in Mochi Mojiland book, my last book, and he said like, oh, this could be a TV show and let's make it. And even just by way of the way that the international tax credits work, like everybody working on it has to be a French or Canadian, but I can be involved. So it's not my show. I'm not making it. I'm not hiring it, hiring anyone. I'm not animating anything, but I get to see all the characters and give feedback and, you know, talk about designs. I've gotten to see and talk about all of the scripts at all the stages from the pitch the idea to the synopsis to the scripts like multiple versions of the scripts so that's been really really cool to work with these professional um children's it's a children's show children's television writers so i'm not responsible for writing it but i can um you know give ideas and give feedback and they've they've really incorporated a lot of them um to my surprise (laughs) sometimes so it's been this like really really interesting collaboration um, like this amazing thing. I mean, a little bit, the closest thing that I've experienced is with Nickelodeon where like I'm involved and it's like, I've got this huge connection with my work, but it's like all these people who really know what they're doing, the professionals are doing the actual work and are going to make it look amazing. Originally the concept was for it to be a stop motion animated television show. And they made a little trailer and they made models that like, I didn't even know about half of this stuff going on, but they hired all these knitters in France. (laughs) And then they sent me photos of people knitting things in the studio. It was incredible. Um, Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, um, it has had to shift to a computer animated show. The good news about that is that the technology is crazy amazing and it looks woolly. It looks knitted. It's so tactile. 
Um, I have yet to see an entire episode yet, but I've seen little clips and I've seen all the designs and it just looks fabulous. The director they have involved is so, so talented. And it's, I know it's airing for sure um, in 2024 in France and in Canada and hopefully coming to a television or streaming service near you sometime in 2024 or after. I don't have any details about other countries, but it's for sure happening in those two. It's uh, incredibly exciting. That is, yeah, so, so cool. Um, And it really ties a bow around your sort of um, major that you added in right at the end of college, (laughs) you know, like it all comes back around. So I love that so much. And I want to make sure we get to your recommendations before we're we're too late. So you have some really great recommendations, Hannah. So I want to make sure we get there. Um, One of them is a tiny pottery wheel. So what is this? Okay. Um, Maybe you've seen this. I think it's been kind of big on Instagram and stuff, especially during COVID when people were stuck at home. Um, But I took a class recently. I take take clay classes at a neighborhood art studio um, in Chicago called Little Street, which is a incredible place. Um, and I recently took a class that was all about making tiny pottery and I am not very good at using a pottery wheel. I have tried it and it did not go well. So I didn't, I didn't expect much, but I was like, I do make tiny things. So I think I could at least try this and it went so much better than I expected. It turns out a tiny pottery wheel is so much easier (laughs) than the regular size kind. It's literally like, um, the size of, I don't know, like a silver dollar, the wheel itself. Mm-hmm. And it comes wow. on this little, the base has a motor. It hooks into a um, USB. Mm-hmm. So it's just like totally portable and great. And yeah, you use your fingers to make pots. And because it's so small, I think it makes it easier to center things, mm-hmm. center the clay and move it around. And um, so I made, like in this class, I made coffee cups. I made a little amphibian. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. Like different little vases. I made a pitcher with a lid. Do pitchers have lids? I don't remember. I made something with a lid. Um, and, uh, it was, it was so fun. And I, um, I've used it a little bit since the class. I want to do it even more, but, um, I haven't quite like posed my characters with them too much. I feel like there's potential there. I don't know, but I'm just focused on like making the little pots. It's so great. If you get a chance to, um, to try this out, uh, I think I would highly recommend it to anybody. And you also wanted to recommend a smoothing option for Photoshop's <laughs> brush tool. We've got a lot of Photoshop fans who are listeners to the show. So tell us about that. Okay. And this might be something very, very basic that everybody already knows about. I don't know, but I recently discovered it. Um, I use Photoshop all the time and I think it does have so many features that like probably nobody really can do all of them and you just know your own little things in it. But um, I, I did recently find as I was trying to draw like a really simple shape to just go on my, um, on my sort of cover image for a pattern, I just wanted to make like a blobby shape. But like when I tried to draw with a brush tool, it just looked really wonky and I couldn't get it nice. And, And they didn't have like, you know, one of their shape options didn't seem right. And then I saw like this tiny little, little option um, where you could drag around the percentage of smoothing and you can drag it so that it's very, very smooth. And suddenly I'm just on my little trackpad. I don't have one of the 
tablets, um, suddenly I could draw like a beautiful little cloud. So, I mean, I think it's just, I mean, maybe there's more potential to me. It just seems like little shapes, making something kind of cute and nice very, very quickly without like opening up um, Illustrator or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, this is great. I'm going to use it all the time now. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with you that once you learn a couple of features, you just sort of stay within what you already know. And um, it's harder to sort of dig dig deeper and really understand all the potential that's there. So it's helpful to get recommendations from people who have, you know, exposure to other tools that you're like, oh, wait, let me go try that, you know, so that's great. And then, yeah, I like um, to learn like one one new Photoshop thing a year. Yeah, <laughs> I think that right, works exactly. Well <laughs> exactly. It's like don't get overwhelmed, but you know. Um, and then you also wanted to recommend old issues of Horizon, which is an art magazine from well, I guess it started in the fifties and went um, through the eighties. Yeah, so I have this um, in my neighborhood. There's a used bookstore that always has really cool stuff. And I discovered about a year ago that they have this huge collection of these old art magazines that are hardbound. Um, and they're, yeah, like a mid-century, uh, sort of sophisticated what's going on in the art world. And then also essays about historical art stuff um, in this beautiful book. Um, and uh it's just so fun to see the writing style, the writing style has changed since then. And the way that people wrote about art, especially art that was like new in the sixties, for example, stuff that is not new to us anymore, but to read that kind of firsthand account of like the new exciting design stuff that's happening. I can't get enough of that. I think it's really, really fun. And uh, I love getting that glimpse of um, the culture or a specific part of the culture from that time. Um, and, uh, and and names that you'll recognize also pop up in there. So there, if you find the Wikipedia entry on this magazine, um, I think it lists some, some of the contributors and it's really interesting to see who contributed to it. And, oh, and the best thing, at least at this used bookstore, they're really cheap. And I think you can get them online for like not much money. So um, highly recommend for reading and inspiration. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Well, Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was so great talking to you. Thank you, Abby. This was so fun. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by the Academy for Virtual Teaching, a community of creatives building proficient, profitable, and professional online teaching businesses. As a solopreneur, you understand that feeling of exhaustion. There are limited hours in the day and only one of you to go around. The Academy for Virtual Teaching will help you develop the skills needed to add online education to your business model. It's a free private membership community of supportive colleagues sharing the love of making things with students around the world. They've got an entire library full of equipment reviews and technical skill building workshops. They invite you to join the Academy for Virtual Teaching at a4vt.com. That's a, the number four, vt.com. They can't wait to see you there. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, 
and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.